0: Hello and welcome to Now Here's a Thing, the latest laid-back podcast crafted by me, Tracy Jones, and me, Heather Noble. <laughs> right. <laughs> Shall I go? Yeah, you you, you tell Now me. Here's a Thing. So, do you reckon we lie on average in a day? Crikey, I don't know. Depends, Depends <laughs> who you're with. <laughs> Depends what you're doing. Well, Are we talking white lies? Are we talking big black bad I think, lies? I think just lies. Humans lie all the time. Okay. And so there was an article in um I found this well, this is all about lies anyway, so I could just lie to you about it. Um, there's an article in July twenty twenty two from Big Think about uh, lying and then there was another one saying um that we're not as good at spotting liars as we think we are from November, just now. No. Now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so apparently on average humans lie thirty times a day. Gosh, okay. So how many of you talked oh, up today? No, I don't know. So there was a theory of this idea of epistemic vigilance. So epistemic vigilance is an argument that says we possess all the tools to identify and call out lies. So um, there's a paper, quite a famous paper, I've never heard of it, called um, by um, authors Serber et al who have the ETA alcohol... That's everybody else, isn't it? ...and everybody else, um, argued that humans have a suite of cognitive mechanisms for epistemic vigilance targeted at the risk of being misinformed by others. Uh, In English, we've got a built-in lie detector. To protect us. Yeah, okay, To keep us safe. Mm -hmm. However, there's another more recent um, paper um, which says that um, that's not Right. Okay. Who's telling the truth? Yeah. Um, So apparently there are two um, reasons to argue for this epistemic vigilance. And one is that um, we tend to be a truth default species. So we assume that most people are telling the truth from the start. And then over time, if they tell a lie, we'll readjust.
1: Yes. And we'll change
0: our expectations. So... Clearly, they're wrong. We're not going to ask them about that again, or they're a liar. Um, And the other strand that supports epistemic, um, epistemic vigilance—sorry—is that children learn very early who to trust and not to trust. That—that was the reason for us having this inbuilt. Are they taught that, or do they do that naturally? I wonder, children. So naturally, I think that one was saying. Okay. Um. Pascal Boyer a psychologist said there seems to uh, the children seem to be sensitive to the dis, uh, difference between expert and novice and then later as they grow toddlers use cues of competence to judge different individuals and mistrust mistrust those who've been wrong previously even Crikey, as a toddler quite harsh so that's what that argument about epistemic vigilance okay OK, and that we we look for truth over falsehoods. Mm-hmm. However, there's another philosopher called Joseph Sheba or Sheba. I'm not quite sure. As, as always, we never really know how to pronounce these names. But Joe <laughs> thinks that that's not right. He doesn't dispute the fact that we're vigilant. He just says it's not epistemic. Okay, so it's not inbuilt into us. And and we're particularly bad at telling truth from falsehoods, he reckons. Surely some of us are better at it than others. Presumably. He does say, though, if we do have a built-in lie detector, it's inaccurate. Often it's turned off and is usually distracted by other things. And apparently there's two studies... Uh, one from 1996 and one from 2005, uh, is that when people use non... Oh, that people do use non-epistemic factors to determine whether someone is good at their job. Okay. So So whether they've got the right face or how they walk, how they talk, how they hold themselves. Okay. So you rely on that more than... Listening to what they say and seeing if they're telling the truth.
1: Yeah, and that goes back to the whole communication thing about it's not so much what you say; it's how you look and how you sound when you say it. Yeah. So somebody could walk in and behave like they're an expert, exactly. and you would believe that they're an expert. Yeah. And if
0: you if you went with that argument, wow, that humming has started again. Yeah, it's not even. I am a different time. I bring, bring that to the office. Yeah. Maybe my humming. I don't know. I don't think the sound's coming from me. Anyway. 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 So there's a new phrase now, not, not just epistemic vigilance. Sheba or Scheiber, Joseph, has got this new expression called the Nietzsche thesis, okay. as a Nietzsche philosopher. He argues that our goal in conversation is not to acquire truthful information, but self preservation. So we accept or reject statements based on our own utilitarian goals and not their truthfulness. So if they serve us, we're more likely to believe it, which sounds quite credible to me.
1: Well, certainly when you think about um, horoscopes and things like that, you know, you read your horoscope and you go, oh, that's bunkum because it doesn't say anything. But if you like it, oh. Oh, yeah, yeah." I quite like that. Yeah, yeah.
0: So and, And conversely, we're hostile to potentially harmful and destructive truths. So... He reckons we don't have epistemic vigilance, we have a Machiavellian take uh, on it. yeah. I believe what I want so, to believe. Yes, if it's good for us. And it also says that, um, actually, if we had this epistemic vigilance, then there wouldn't be so many popular conspiracy theories. Because if this epistemic vigilance were the case, yeah. we'd be fact-checking and dismissing the untrue ones but we don't because we're taken in by charismatic and compelling arguments and speakers and things that um, we want to accept or things that will preserve your social status so that's so that would then go some way towards explaining why people
1: get so attached to a conspiracy theory whereas somebody else is like well this is bleeding obvious; it's a conspiracy theory whereas somebody else is
0: like oh no that's a certain truth and get... Is it a way of preserving something for yes. them so they hold on to it and support that? It, if, yeah, at,
1: at the very least, the fact that they go, oh, yeah, actually, this thing that I've believed all this time is actually nonsense and now I feel a bit stupid.
0: Yeah, and that's difficult because your social status yes. could go yeah. down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you might keep holding on to it to see that to admit you were wrong. Yeah. <gasps> yeah. Dreadful. People people do. Yeah, people do. So then... On BigThink.com, that that article I was reading about the Nietzsche um, thesis also linked into another article called Three Rules to Catch a Liar. Mm. So how do you catch a liar? Based on the fact that the average person lies 30 times a day, it obviously comes easily and naturally to us to lie. And there are obvious advantages to lying. And for people to believe the lies. But if you wanted to catch a liar, there are three things this article suggests. Ask them questions.
1: It's a good one. To expand on a statement that they might have made. Um, Look at their body language.
0: Um, Ask them if they're lying. That's a good one. Ask him straight out. OK, so this um, this article was based on a research paper called High Value Detainee Interrogation. Bloody I yeah. did Where look have to you... it and have a look at it. But to be honest, it was a bit too... What are you rough. reading
1: at bedtime? This is <laughs> hardcore.
0: Yeah, detainees. Yes. Yeah, I, I have ways of making you talk. So, one, keep them talking. So liars are often hesitant or unable um, to talk more about what what they're discussing, because they can't draw on real memories, or they yeah. lack the imagination to fabricate the detail, or fear that they will give themselves away, so they tend to give slightly less detail. Yes. Okay. So it's better to get them to, as you say, asking questions, but rather than in an accusatory way, yeah. just get tell them tell into me more conversation. About that. Yeah, yeah. So be a good listener. Listen yeah. to them, ask some questions, keep them talking. So tick there. Well done, Heather. And, oh, especially unexpected questions. So that a good liar will probably prepare for expected questions, maybe yeah. even practice it, but ask them a slightly unexpected one. Listen to their feelings is rule number two or lack thereof. Okay, so this is something they referred to as reality monitoring. The process by which an individual attributes a memory to a real experience or to imagination. So what, what the article says is when we recollect a true memory, we reference sensory details as well. Yeah. How it looked, how it smelled, how we felt about something. And would we'll talk about specific details of it. So if they're making it up, they may be just more logical and matter of fact and tell you the actual details rather than how it made them feel. So truth tellers will include sensory descriptions. Liars won't. That makes absolute sense, doesn't it?
1: Because, yeah, as you say, they've got nothing to draw on because they can't tell you how it felt because they don't know how it felt because they didn't do it or they don't believe it or yeah, they don't know about it or
0: whatever. There's a nice example here. It says, for instance, suppose you're walking home from the cinema... With a true memory, your recollection will likely focus on the sounds. So the sound of a bus, splashing a puddle, or your grumpiness at being wet, etc. If it's false, the story will more likely be, it was raining and I had my umbrella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting, isn't it? And then the third one, get them busy. I like this one. Lying is multitasking. So... It can be quite difficult if you're doing something else as well. Because liars must plan what they say and remember to play the role and suppress the truth. So if you keep their brain too busy doing other things, they don't have enough mental resources left over to lie or lie convincingly. A bit like patting your head and rubbing your stomach or whatever it is you do
1: or try to do. Yeah, you can't. One of them will go, and it might well
0: be the lying bit. Yeah. that wavers. So, so, two interesting little um, tips here. Not saying that you need to use these. Heather. Well, I am worrying now. What lies I've told today? <laughs> well, so if you suspect, well, that's partner, a lie. I am not actually worrying. No, you are not really. How, how does that make you feel? Heather? <laughs> and while you do that, can you just do this Rubik's cube? Yeah. Tell me about it. So, if you suspect your partner of cheating, yeah, ask them questions while they're driving. Okay, or if you think someone is inventing an alibi, get them to tell the story backwards, which is much harder to oh, do if you haven't done it. Yeah,
1: if you haven't actually. The driving thing's it. interesting because I've heard that actually um, having difficult conversations side by side. side by side is much less confrontational. So it may be that there is something in beyond that that if you are sat next to your partner. While they're driving, and you ask them something relating to whether or not they're cheating, it might be easier for them to respond because you're not being as accusatory. Yes, yeah.
0: yeah. Um, I don't know whether having these conversations whilst in a moving vehicle is the safest thing to do. I did see a vehicle once just stop in front of
1: me. The like it anchored up, and the woman got out. And he was like, get back in, oh no, getting back in the car with you, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I don't okay. know what conversation maybe they, maybe were they were having. were having that
0: conversation, yeah. yeah. So there we go, the Nietzsche thesis, why we don't really care about the truth. Thank you to bigthink.com and also um, three tools to spot a liar.
1: How did you happen upon that article? Were you looking for something to talk about or did it just pop up on your feed and you read it
0: and then you decided that would be your
1: thing for the week? Do
0: you know what? I don't know. I think maybe it was in some... The the Nietzsche thesis was in some thread or something I was reading. And then I pulled on that thread and I got all the way back there. So... Okay. She lied. I don't remember. You don't know. Yeah, well, and so, yeah, I don't... Can you tell me that story backwards? (laughs) So I'm sitting in your office... (laughs) With a rumbling going on in the background. We were talking about knickers and bras before we pressed play. And I went for a wee just as I arrived in the office. How much detail do I ever... It's so true. Now, here's the thing.
1: I've just been to London for the weekend, which is a, you know, a big city. A big, big city. The big smoke. The big smoke. And we arrived on a Saturday. And as we were going to our hotel... Uh, we walked past a pub and there were a load of people stood outside having a cigarette um, in uniform with lots of medals okay and I spotted these very smart gentlemen and as we walked past I said to my husband it's probably a funeral isn't it you know because there's no reason why this is the weekend before Remembrance Sunday yes so. the weekend before yeah, yeah. Um, so just thought oh you know it's a funeral and oh you know why are the lads and all of that sort of thing we spend the weekend in London. Sunday, late afternoon, we're in an old boozer um, near... Uh, Leicester old Square. boozer's in an old boozer. Old boozer's in an old boozer. You know, one of, a really narrow, sort of long pub. Oh, well, you I know, a proper yeah, pub. Yeah. And we go in there, and uh, there's a guy at the bar in uniform with loads of medals. And a guy talking to him who was impeccably dressed. And then, a bit further into the back of the bar, there were more people. with all these medals and I was like well this can't be the same funeral because we're 24 (laughs) hours on although maybe so of course there's something going on and in my head I'm thinking but it's not Remembrance Sunday it's not Remembrance Weekend Yeah. Uh, so talking to Stuart and I'm just like but what's what's going on what do you think's going on there's a thing going on he said oh why don't you just go and ask and that's what you want to do and I said, I'm no. surprised you didn't ask them straight away. Well, I was actually... being, I was feigning being reserved. <laughs> um, anyway, right enough, I walked up to these two blokes and said, sorry to interrupt, what's going on? And it turns out that they they were all submariners, people from the submarine corps. Okay. And I, and I said to them, because, you know, I'm seeing a lot of people, Dressed with their medals and everything But it's not Remembrance Weekend And he said, no, no We have our own um, Celebration or commemoration Not celebration, commemoration service uh, The weekend before Remembrance Sunday And I said, oh, okay, why is that? And he said, because um, We, a hundred years ago In 1900 We were considered To be um, pirates So um, during World War I, um, Lord Admiral Sir Arthur Wilson complained that submarines were underhand, unfair and damned un Oh, wow. And that personnel should be hanged as pirates. Wow. So, that's quite uh, a... Is <laughs> that why they go uh, their own way with this thing? Yeah. So, so as a continuation of that... They the have, otherness they, of it. The otherness of it. Yeah. They have their own stuff. They still take part in Remembrance Sunday, but they were kind of alienated and segregated and so they set up their own um commemorative event wow. which
0: happens the weekend before Remembrance Sunday. So when were they not considered pirates? Has that been acknowledged? Um, or is that still Are uh, submariners still it, classed as pirates?
1: We have I think they are more accepted now because you actually can Um, It used to be, according,
0: talking to these gentlemen, that... um, Were they lying or were they telling the truth? I'm
1: pretty sure. They were so passionate. Yeah. And so, I mean, obviously, alcohol had been consumed, but they weren't drunk. No. Um, They, there was so much camaraderie, because I was observing these people coming in, and they were all so, they couldn't have all known each other, you know, like... 10 blokes going out for a drink. People were coming in and there was this camaraderie amongst them. And they were so passionate about the role that they play and have played. uh, And the fact that you used to, um, you used to have to join the Navy and then you could become a submariner you know because because i said to them you need to be a certain type of person don't you to live for months under the water not knowing where you I can't are bear it. nobody else knowing where you are and they said yeah absolutely you do need to be a certain type of person um and that's part of why we have this camaraderie because we understand in a way that that's not to say that the RAF and the army, you know, but there's so many strands. Yeah. The one constant with, if you're a submariner, is that you are going underwater. Yeah. It, the isolation. The isolation. Um All of those things. So
0: claustrophobia. For
1: claustrophobia, yeah. And um so yeah, they were really, they were fascinating. And how long did you um, keep chatting? Well, we were going to the comedy store, so I needed to leave, but I probably managed about 15 minutes with them. And they were lovely. Uh, And then, of course, the whole nuclear submarine thing. I get that. But they were all wearing a gold badge that was like two dolphins sort of diving towards each other. Um, And then those who'd worked on nuclear submarines had the same badge, but in a sort of pewter. And then they got all these medals, obviously. Uh, I've always been fascinated by submarines ever since I found out that they were a thing. And I always assumed that submarine... I like big stuff. I like submarines, aircraft carriers, jets, tanks. I'm not from a military background. I just... I just... Big... I like big trucks. I like, you know, big kit. I like... Do you get the gist? Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I always thought that submarines were long, like a, like a torpedo Like ship. a pencil. Yeah. And when I found out they were more like a hot water bottle... I was like, oh my gosh, what? So there's like upstairs and downstairs and... So they're actually very... Bi- there's a lot of them under the water. Um, I ha- I've had the um, privilege, privilege of seeing a couple of submarines. One um, in the... Uh, off the Isle of Skye uh, in Scotland. Just, you could just see the top of it. And I remember being on holiday in Turkey once and a white submarine was moored um, and it was a, a Greek um submarine so I just think they're great things have you ever beaten one no and I think the claustrophobia bit I, I think I would find challenging mm. even just to go on board one but I thought I'd have a little look and see um what so the submariners association they talk about the fact that they were all in London uh the first ever submariners memorial service was held in 1923 And every year the remembrance has been held the week before the main remembrance commemorations so that they can attend both. But um, so that they don't let go of this fact that they were, you know, ostracised. Yes. Yeah. So then when I go on and I find the use of the Jolly Roger as a flag for submarines, and that's also true of submarines in other countries, How many submarines do you think we've got? Two. (laughs) No, we've got ten at the moment. Uh, We used to have quite a lot. Um, But, and I did have... Where's it gone now? I had a nice chart of the number of... The Chinese and the Russians have the most submarines, which is no big surprise. Um, And we've got ten. So... Our first Royal, the first Royal Navy submarine uh, was Holland, Holland 1, and it was launched in 1901. Wow. So, it was the first time we had submarines.
0: And by and the that's time, when
1: they were still classed as pirates? Well, that was before they were classed as pirates. Okay. By the time the Second World War started, we had 57. The comment of the uh, underhandedness and everything was made in 19... 19- 1914, I think it was. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So so China has got 78 uh, submarines. Russia's got 70. The USA have got 68. Wow. um, We've got 10. And we've got 10 um, just behind Greece. Seas are quite busy. The submarines are quite big, though, aren't they? The seas. The sea. And again, this was one of the things that the the guys were saying. And they weren't being, it wasn't bravado or anything like that. He said, there is so much that the submarine fleet are doing that literally two or three people know about. Wow. And it's not necessarily always what people would think that they're doing. So the contribution that they're making to security for our, our islands is pretty significant. But we... We don't hear about it. We don't hear about it. They can't tell their families. Uh, where they are, they can't have contact with their families. And they were talking about one of the reasons why they do, they continue this event. Uh, and in fact, there was a, a young uh, submariner attending this year who was 17. So they had somebody who was 17 and they had a veteran who was 100 at this same event. And they were talking about recruitment into the service is really, really difficult yeah, can imagine. because can you imagine a young person today not having access to a device 24-7? It, it, it,
0: yeah, how do they maintain their friendships? I exactly. Mean, yeah, exactly. Really
1: so that wasn't so much of an issue for a lot of these guys who are now retired because... You sent letters. So it'll just be like, well, I won't be writing to you or phoning you on a Sunday or whatever. That's not quite the same as I won't be in immediate contact with everybody and the outside world. And so they're having to really think about how they recruit people because of this, just this, that one dynamic wow. makes it, um, not appealing to so many young people. So they're more likely to go
0: into the general navy than, than into the submarine fascinating and I I applaud you and thank you because you bring the the interesting stories by just going and having a conversation with somebody you can't ignore these you know I just dismissed
1: it the first lot I thought this is obviously a funeral you know how sad and then it's like there's something going on here and they all are in the same and I need to know yeah and I need to know they were lovely and they were really lovely and they were really willing to talk about it
0: and not like pirates
1: well not at the point at which I saw them I mean what happened later they could get their colours. out yeah exactly <laughs> all sorts of things could have killed them. Now Here's The Thing is a Jones and Noble production brought to you every week well
0: maybe not every week ever <laughs>
1: recorded with an iPhone a microphone and lots of hot air